0: Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth, your word tells us, and our hearts delight in that truth, and we learn of it in your word that is written for us, where you have, in a book, revealed yourself. You've given us promises, examples, instructions. You give us wisdom, you teach us, all in your word, and it points us continually to your glory and your saving work and your sanctifying work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is to that end that we ask, Holy Spirit, that you, who as a divine person, have the commission to teach, and that is your ministry to us, the church. And so we ask you who gave the word, that you would be a teacher of it to our hearts. Give us understanding that we might walk in your way, and that we might know you better, to know Christ better and to live for the glory of God better. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles, if you will, back to the book of Revelation. Uh, It's going to fall there naturally over enough time, uh, as long as we're going to be here. Though we will speed things up down the road. But open your Bible up to uh, Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to finish this morning our look at this opening section of John being commissioned as an apostle. And as the one who received the revelation of Christ. Who was commissioned to write that revelation and to send it to the church. And he's receiving that call, that command, that work from the Lord uh, here in this passage and he's introducing to us, as many of the old Proph- Old Testament prophets did. Do you remember Isaiah, who went into the temple and he saw the the vision of the Lord, his train, the train of his robe filling the temple, the angels around him singing, "Holy, holy, holy," and so forth. It was his commission, his call, as is for Isaiah the prophet to go out to the nation and bring a message. And it's very similar here to the Apostle John, as he's receiving what will be revealed to us through the next. 20 chapters were sown. Now, I said in this opening section, really going from verses 9 to chapter toward the end of chapter 1, down to verse 20, that these are six self disclosures of the risen and sovereign Lord for our comfort and confrontation. Six self-disclosures of the exalted Lord, we could say, that are designed to introduce His message that is going to both comfort His people with His sovereign rule and His sovereign purposes and the sovereign end that He will bring about, but as well to confront them as well, to call them to holiness, to confront the world in rebellion to Him and remind them that He is the Lord, He is the judge. And so this is the message that He's introducing here. Here. And in these six self-disclosures of the Sovereign Lord, they are these, one, that he is the Sovereign Lord of Revelation, that's verses 9 through 11, that he is the Sovereign Lord of glory, that he is the Sovereign Lord of history, that he is the Sovereign Lord of redemption, that he is the Sovereign Lord of judgment, and he is the Sovereign Lord of the church. We are going to finish the look at the first one this morning, his Sovereign Lord of Revelation. But let's begin by just reading these first few verses, verses 9 through 11. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And such is then the opening words of the Lord's call to John to be the emissary, to be the recorder of this divine revelation. And we noticed last time that. In this revelation, we're first introduced to the servant of the Sovereign Lord, the Apostle John himself, and he identifies himself in the most humble of terms. He says he is our brother and he is a fellow partaker. He is a fellow partaker in all that it means to be identified with Christ and to live for Christ in a fallen world. He writes as one who knows what it's like to suffer for Christ, knows what what it's like to pay the price for being faithful to Christ, for bearing the name of Christ. He knows what it's like to rest on the same promises and have the same hope that allows him to persevere to the end in the ministry that Christ has called him to. In other words, he knows what it's like to live in the power of the Spirit in light of all that test the servants of God. And so he marks then what he shares in us with, which are essentially then the characteristics of the Christian life, what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world. It's going to mean rather more and more intense things as the church reaches near the end, which is what John is going to reveal to us, but these are the characteristics of the church throughout the ages. He says, first, I am a fellow partaker, then, in the tribulation. And this is a reminder from last week. And it means that to some degree or another, there is a cost in following Christ. That's true for everyone. It's different for everyone. But to some degree or another, there is a cost in following Christ. And that is very often in Scripture identified as tribulations, tribulations. He's not referring here to that specific seven-year period that he's going to move on to later in the letter. An eschatological period where God reveals his divine wrath on an unjust world and on a wicked world. He's simply talking here about the tribulations and the troubles that come from following Christ. And yes, they will increase in the end, but they are true for all Christians throughout all the ages. He defines himself as well, not only as being a sharer in the tribulations of following Christ, but being one who is a fellow citizen in the kingdom of Christ. He's a fellow partaker of the kingdom. And here is better reference or a better focus, to the king. He belongs to the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all. He with us, we are citizens of a kingdom. We are citizens of a kingdom that ultimately will, as Daniel anticipated and we looked at before, will crush all other kingdoms at the return of Christ. It is the kingdom that is the true and eternal and everlasting kingdom. It is the kingdom purchased by Christ. It is a kingdom, however, that is yet in all of its fullness to be revealed, It is a kingdom that is being built right now. It is a kingdom that is also suffering until our king returns. And it will happen again, only more and more of the suffering as the kingdom of the Antichrist is allowed its final last flame, its last burning out, if you will, its last, its peak before God brings it to an end. But we are a part of a kingdom that now is persecuted, but it is the kingdom that will last forever. It is the kingdom that will be established. It is the kingdom that we are assured of, and it is the kingdom of which we are citizens. And so then he says, thirdly, that he is a fellow partaker then of those who persevere to the end in the tribulation in the kingdom and the perseverance. It is an endurance that is guaranteed by Our union with Christ, it is a perseverance that's guaranteed by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is a perseverance that's guaranteed to all who truly belong to Christ. They persevere to the end, even in the face of death. In fact, it is that perseverance to the end that marks one of having experienced a true work of grace in the heart. It doesn't mean without failures, it doesn't mean without struggles, it doesn't mean perfect until the end, but it does mean faithful, kept by God, not denying Christ, even in the face of death. And so, he opens with this very humble recognition of his participation with all of the saints in what it means to belong to Christ and to be identified with Christ. Indeed, he introduces to us what it means to be a Christian. It is the call of the gospel. We call to follow our king wherever he leads. We call to follow our, we're called to follow the king in repentance, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Luke says, take up our cross daily, whatever tribulation it brings, knowing that we are a part of what can never be taken away. And then he introduces us next to the spirit of the sovereign Lord. So if that's the servant of the sovereign Lord. Now there's the spirit of the sovereign Lord. And so he says in verse 10, right after that introduction, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now just as a brief comment here, it is on the Lord's day. It's the only time this exact phrase is used. This is uh, the Sunday. It is the day that commemorates the Lord's resurrection. Often in the epistles, it's talked about the first day of the week. And that's what he's referring to here. He's talking about what God did to him or revealed to him on Sunday, on a day where the church usually gathers. And as with the tribulation I just mentioned, is not referring to the eschatological tribulation. He's not referring here by the Lord's Day to that eschatological Lord's Day, that anticipation of the completion of all of the Lord's works and judging the nation. Some take it that way, but... Very few. It's best to take it here simply as a recognition of Sunday. He's identifying the time when the Lord gave this revelation to him. More importantly, what he's focusing on here, however, is not the day that the Lord revealed it, but the source of that revelation. He says he was in the Spirit. He was in the Spirit. Now this phrase can be taken in two ways. Either way, to be aware of, it could be taken as in the Spirit. Some say the emphasis here is that it's the spiritual state that John was in, and that's part of apocalyptic writers and those who are given visions, that it refers to the inner condition, the inner place in which he received this revelation from God. Or it could be taken with a capital S, which as it is in most of your Bibles, to refer to the source of that revelation, the Holy Spirit. Both are legitimate ways to take it. But the best option is the second, that it is an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And that's the one adopted by most translations. So if you have a New American Standard or an English Standard Version or an American Standard Version or a King James Version, uh, it will be capitalized as the Spirit. And that's the best way to take it. But however, in either way, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference which way you take it. The sense is still the same. It conveys the same idea that God... By the Holy Spirit, brought the Apostle John into an inner experience in which he revealed to him, God revealed to him with an accompanying angel truth regarding the current and the future state of the church, God's intentions for the world. He gave him a side for the way things are and the way things will be in the future. And that is the idea. And he did so through a vision. A vision. So then what does it mean? How is that related then, that he is in the Spirit? How does that connect to what he received by nature of a vision? And what is a vision? And why did God give a vision? Why does God sometimes communicate that way? And particularly in apocalyptic literature, that which has to do with end times, that which has to do with, has an emphasis on judgment. Why does he reveal himself in this way? Well, essentially a vision, and is this, it's God pulling back the curtains, if you will It's a way that we perceive reality through our human eyes There's a certain perception that we have And when God gives a vision, when God gives a word through his prophet In these pictures, and these images He is essentially pulling back the curtain He's establishing for his people a worldview. He's letting him see, them see things as they really are Not as we can see merely with human eyes But as he sees them through his divine eyes, as it were how he views things. And so a vision is a, is, a, is a place where God brings his prophet to have an exceptional experience of reality in a way that is meant to impact not only the prophet, but the people of God with truth. And so by communicating this way, again, God gives an interpretation of reality that is meant to impress itself upon the mind and upon the heart. One said to give a distinctive worldview. And God often revealed himself this way in the Old Testament and to Old Testament prophets. And there's a connection here, even to the very language, to the way that God revealed himself and his purposes to Israel, to the prophet Ezekiel. Don't turn there. I'll just give you a few examples of this. In Ezekiel 3.12... The prophet said, and then the, the prophet Ezekiel, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling and a sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. And he goes on to reveal a vision. In Ezekiel 3.14, he says, And the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. In Ezekiel 43.5, and this is the part where he's looking at this great future temple, Ezekiel's temple. And he says this, And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and so forth and showed him a vision of this temple. Is something that was experienced by Daniel, and it was something in Daniel's experience that uh, he marks out for us is known only to the one to whom God gives it, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some manifestation, some way that others are aware of that something divine and supernatural is going on. So Daniel said in Daniel 10, 7, now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision while the men who were with me did not see the vision nevertheless a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves so they didn't see specifically what daniel saw but they knew something supernatural was going on that he was in the presence of god but it's not just old testament saints You see this, examples of similar experiences even in the New Testament. So you'll remember in Acts chapter 10, this is Peter's call to go to the Gentiles, to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles but Peter opened the door to the Gentiles in his ministry to Cornelius and he's called to that ministry in Acts chapter 10 and you'll remember how God showed this to him he was up on the roof he was praying he became hungry while those in the house were cooking the food and then he said while he was there that he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down lowered by four corners to the ground and there were all kinds of four-footed animals crawling creatures of the earth and so forth and voice spoke to him and said kill and eat and he said no I'm not going to do that nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth and it was repeated and then Peter got the message oh I can go to the Gentiles go to Cornelius you see something similar with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22 that God revealed himself in this way He says in verse 17 Paul does and it happened he's giving an account here Of his experience, he said, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, uh, for they will not accept your testimony about me. Most famously, Paul records an incident, and we're familiar with this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in which he says, I'll tell you about a man who was taken up into heaven and saw things in heaven and heard things in heaven that a man is not permitted to speak. And he says, whether this person was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. The Lord knows. He had some kind of experience. Did God physically take him somewhere else? Or did God just simply bring him in his own experience, his own inner experience, his own consciousness into another realm? Uh, Who knows? Paul himself, who experienced it, didn't even know. But each of these give... Uh, characteristics of what it means to receive a vision from God that we see with John himself. And that means that this person to whom God reveals this experience has a real stimulation of the senses, who really does see images, who really does hear sounds, who really does interact with divine beings. So whether it's physically present, taken somewhere else, uh, who knows exactly, but he received a vision from God. And it's a powerful vision. It was meant to impress upon him on all of his senses, on his total and entire person, the significance of what the risen Lord is revealing. Appeal to his sight. You can see here, he says right in verse 11, what you see, what you see when he saw the beast coming up out of the sea in Revelation 13, he said, I saw the beast as a matter of fact, he uses that exact form of the term that says I saw over 45 times or about 45 times in Revelation. He's talking about what he actually saw, what his eyes perceived, what was brought before him. He heard actual sounds. Here, he says, when I heard behind me a loud voice, and again, that's repeated throughout The book of Revelation, over 26 times, he talks about what he heard. He speaks, he interacts with the divine angel throughout all of this experience. He says in 7.14 that he spoke to the angel, I said to him, and six times that phrase is used exactly. He moves around so there's some sense of movement that he has within this ecstatic experience, within this being in the Spirit. In Revelation 17, 3, it says, he was carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness. In chapter 21, 10, again, he says, he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and that's where he saw the new Jerusalem coming down. So this is an amazing experience. When he says he was in the Spirit, it means that he was by a supernatural work of God brought by the Holy Spirit into a real experience, something presented to all of his senses, a revelation of truth. In a way that was meant to impact him, and it meant to impact all of the readers of Scripture and all of the readers of this prophecy. And so it is significant that it is. As well, the Spirit who is revealing this. It is an affirmation of the divine nature then, and the authority and the trustworthiness of what he received. This is not merely from John. It is from God himself, from God, the eternal God, the God of truth, the God who is, the God who is to come. As he said in verse 8, God who is almighty. And notice here then, in writing this down, The emphasis is on the divine interpretation of these events. And here we're reminded of Peter's own words, that it's not his experience that mattered, it was the record of that experience in Scripture. We are reminded of the fact that God has revealed Himself, that God has revealed Himself to us. And that that is an amazing reality that we don't want to just skip over when we read Scripture, That God is active in the life of his people. He's not distant, that he's near. That God reveals truth that we cannot know, but that we need to know. That is essential for us to know in order to persevere, in order to live wisely. And it's an encouragement as well. By recognizing this, that the Spirit who gave this revelation, the Spirit that brought John into this experience, the Spirit that enabled him to write this word without error in the original autographs, is the Spirit who also gives us understanding as we read, as we study, as we try to put all of the pieces together It is the spirit that we can rely on, and it is the spirit that we can rely on not merely to communicate to us the right information about Scripture, but to impress it upon our heart with a spiritual perception and sense of it. And so Paul prayed for the Ephesians that our eyes would be enlightened, that we would come to understand it in our soul, in our inner man, in our spirit, that we would come to understand in that secret place of of the inside, as it were, what God has revealed to us. That we would see Christ, essentially. That's where sanctification takes place. But notice where that moves us. He says, Then I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the sovereign Spirit of the sovereign Lord revealing to him a message. And he says this, And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of the trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And here is the third point this is the scripture and our sovereign Lord. Scripture in our sovereign Lord. He says, I heard a great voice behind me, like the sound of a trumpet. He hears this voice as he's in the spirit. It, then the sound of this voice clues him to know that he is receiving a message from a king, the king, the risen Lord, a message from God. Whose voice is this? Well, some argue that this is the voice of the angel. And certainly John will speak to the angel throughout the revelation. It was his angel, Jesus said, whom he sent in verse 1. He'll say it again at the end. Whom Jesus sent to reveal all of these things to John. And John is often interacting with the angel. And certainly we see that there are seven angels who are given trumpets later on, beginning in chapter 8, in the seven trumpet judgments of God. And these trumpets are meant to signal specific judgments of God upon the earth. But only twice in Revelation is the voice likened to the trumpet, the specific voice like a trumpet. And that tells us that this is not merely the voice of an angel, it is not merely the voice of some divine being, it is the voice of the risen and exalted Christ. And it is that voice that sounds like a trumpet that will be the voice that communicates to John the message that is to go out. And so as he speaks to all the churches, it is the voice that commands him to write. Write to the church at Ephesus. Write to the church at Smyrna. Write to the church at Pergamum. And so forth. This is the voice of the risen and exalted Christ. The other time that it's used is actually right before John is given a vision of the divine throne room. In chapter 4 of Revelation, he says this. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard again like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Most certainly there is well a recognition of the voice of the risen Christ. It is a voice then of authority. It is a voice that has the divine authority and divine nature the awe-inspiring sound of God who speaks. And John, being both a Jew and an apostle, steeped in the Old Testament, would immediately associate within himself as well, and those who are reading this, the sound of a voice like a trumpet, the sound of God that thundered from Mount Sinai when he gave the law, when he impressed upon the people his divine presence. Listen to the way, just as a reminder that that's recorded for us in Exodus 19. He says this, You remember the smoke and the thunder, the instructions of the people not to come too near to the base of the mountain lest they die. It says, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain. All of that speaks of divine presence and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. It says in verse 19, When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So powerful was this sound that he says in verse 18 of chapter 20, And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. That somewhat gives us an indication of the impact that this would have had on John, and certainly it did, for later we'll learn that as he turns around to see the voice that was speaking to him, more specifically the person of the voice that was speaking to him, and he saw the glory of the risen Lord, that he fell at his feet as a dead man. So powerful was the experience of the divine presence of God. So powerful here was the sound of this voice that was like a trumpet. It was the divine voice. It was a voice of authority. It was a voice that inspired awe. And it was the voice with which Christ spoke to give a message to his church. Christ is speaking here as the revealer of Scripture. And in a very real sense, as the last book of the New Testament, it is the final word of the Lord to the church. It's his final message to the church. It's the last thing that he has to say before scripture is done. The canon is closed and it is the final message the gospel once revealed to the church is written down and given. It is the last thing that he wants us to know. And with prophetic messages of old and visions of old John is commissioned to write a message that will emphasize the judgment that is to come and after the judgment salvation. But in that order... So note what he says here, and this is significant then. When he heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, and what did he say? He said, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches. He wrote it in a book. He wrote it in a book, a book that would be preserved Not only for the people then and be disseminated across the land, but a book that would be kept and given to the church throughout the ages. He gives him two commands here, write and send. Record it and share it with all of the churches. As a matter of fact, he'll give this command to write down what he sees 11 other times, a total of 12 times in the book of Revelation, where he sees a vision, he receives instruction, he receives some message for the church, and he gives, this command is given to him, write. Write. And here he is again to send what he was to write. That's very similar, as you'll remember, to... In the New Testament epistles, one example of Colossians, he says after you had the letter read here, take it to Laodicea and have it read there. In other words, when scripture was written, it was meant to be shared to all of the churches. It was a message not merely to one local church, but it was a message to the church. And it was to go out. It was to be read. It is the new covenant scriptures. It was for all the people of God. And the idea here is most likely that a copy would be sent to one church then copied again for the next church and so on and so on. But here's the point to recognize in this. In a fundamental sense then it could be stated that the Lord's authority and the Lord's glory is not so much found in experiences that wasn't the point but in the record of that experience in a book and again here we are taking back to the message of Peter who had an experience the Mount of Transfiguration you had an incredible experience. You had an authentic experience. But what did he say? He says, more than that experience in chapter one, even though he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and that was really as impactful as that was, a lesser sense of the majesty that even John saw in the exalted Christ. But he says that we did see this, this picture of his mad, this reality of his majesty was revealed to us. He said, we heard an utterance while we were on the mountain from the mouth of God the Father himself who said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And he says, but more than all of that, that wasn't something just to be kept for us. He says, we have something more sure than that. And that is the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention is to a lamp shining in the dark until the day dawns and the morning star arises. in your heart. Know that first of all, no prophecy is a scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, this wasn't John's receiving a vision, having an experience, and then John trying to figure it out and writing down what he thought. That's the idea here. It's not a matter of one's own interpretation in this sense. It's not a matter of your perception of events, but it is the divine record and the divine interpretation of events that are recorded for us as truth, authoritative truth in Scripture. He goes on, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So this is a record of that experience. It's not John's experience that is an important thing. It is the fact that it was commanded by the risen Christ to write it into a book and give it to the church. So here's what we observe. Simply this, and profoundly this. God speaks to us in a book. He speaks to us in a book. In written words down the pages. It is the book we sing that song That talks about how God is preserved. I'm forgetting the words, so if you're wondering what song, maybe you'll figure it out and tell me. (laughs) But anyway, it is the word that is preserved for us. It is the word that is kept by the blood of God's people throughout the ages. It is the word kept by God through the sovereign work of His Spirit throughout the ages. It is the word of God. He has spoken to us in a book. That is extremely important. The Bible is not merely a religious collection of teachings. It is the living word of the living God which comes with all of the authority and the sufficiency and the truthfulness and the glory of God Himself. The nature of God is bound in the nature of Scripture. The nature of Scripture is bound to the nature of God. They are inseparable. And so when God speaks, he tells him here to write, write it down and send it to the church. And that written word is my word as the risen Lord to the church. These are the words of God. They are words that are eternal. You remember Jesus saying in Matthew 24 to his disciples, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. They are words that bring life. You remember that John said, Jesus said to his disciples in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Later, Peter would say, Lord, to whom shall we go when many deserted him because of the hard teaching? He says, you have words of eternal life. They are words that call to holiness. Again, part of the message is to confront What does Jesus say to the churches? Repent, 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 repent of those who are steeped in sin. They are words that give wisdom and discernment. Twice he will say in the book of Revelation, Here is wisdom. Here is wisdom when he talks about the number of the Antichrist, when he talks about the seven mountains with the seven kings, but all of the book of Revelation is to say, here is wisdom, here is how we discern the times, here is how we live wisely. As a matter of fact, that's what he said at the beginning. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, how do they hear them? They hear them when they're read because they are written down. And they heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. They call to holiness. They call and give wisdom and discernment. They are words that teach, rebuke, correct, exhort, and give hope. The very last words of the the book to be written down, this is recorded for us. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, the one who is thirsty says, Come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, Come, come. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. The point is God reveals himself. He accomplishes his work, his saving work, his sanctifying work, his sustaining and preserving work through Scripture. And so let me make this note too then, an application for us. The reality of our relationship to him, the proof of our love for him, The proof of our heart's response to Him is connected directly to our view of Scripture. Our view of His Word. How we hear His Word. He said to the Thessalonians, if you'll remember in Thessalonians chapter 2, as Paul brought his ministry there, that you received His message, that they received Him, and the message He brought them, not merely as the words of men, but for what they truly are, He said in verse 13, the words of God. The words of God. You receive them for what they are. And to reject them and to not listen to them, he says later in chapter 4 through 8, is not to reject men, but is to reject the Holy Spirit that was given to you. This is not merely any book. It is God's Word. And those who know God, those who have been born again, those who have received life, those who have genuinely trusted in Him, those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit... Hear the words is the word of God. Those who can so easily dismiss the authority of Scripture and the trustworthiness of Scripture, those who can so easily hear it and move on as though it's a divine suggestion and not a divine command, testify that they don't hear the words. They don't hear the words of the living God because maybe they have no ears to hear. But the church hears Christ speak from heaven and they hear Christ. He says, my sheep hear my voice. How do his sheep hear his voice? They hear it in the words of scripture. When it is proclaimed, the ring of truth, the authority of heaven, the sufficiency of God, the glory of the risen Christ is impressed upon the heart of a believer. That they go, yes, those are words that I am to listen to. Those are words that I am to believe. Those are words that I am to respond to. Those are the words that govern my life. They are light unto my path. They restore my soul. They teach me. These are words written in a book. They're written down, and they're written to the church to respond to, and how we respond to his words is a, message, is a direct reflection of our faith or lack of it in him. It's how we know him. So our knowledge of and relationship with Christ is directly then measured by our response and our relationship to Scripture. Scripture. That's to us personally and it's also to the church. The spiritual reality of any church is measured by how they handle the book. How they treat scripture is how they treat Christ. How they think of scripture is how they think of Christ. The effect of the word in our life measures the reality of our relationship with Christ. And it's immaturity or it's maturity or it's lack of life altogether. This is the heart of the message then that he will give to the seven churches. It's the heart of the message that he's given to us. May we listen and observe finally here. That's the scripture in the written Lord. It is the way that he speaks to the church. But notice what he says. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Note lastly here, then, the seven churches of our sovereign Lord. But here's observe this. The message is to the church. He's giving a message to the church. These representatively of the church of the Asia Minor at that time, representative churches who are real churches, congregations that John ministered to, churches who were probably singled out because of not only John's ministry to them, they may very well have been a postal route that was sent around. In other words, they were places where the message would go and be most easily disseminated out to other places. They were places of population. But the key point here is that he's writing to the church, that that is his concern, the church. All of Scripture, while to men in general, and certainly Scripture will be the judge of all men, it is particularly God's word to his people. In connection to the risen Christ, it is to his church. The very last words in verse 16 of Revelation 22, Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches." For the church, That's very personal When he speaks in scripture He's speaking to you He's speaking to me He's speaking to us His gathered people Wherever they gather On the face of this earth Who truly belong to him It is Christ from heaven In real time Revealing himself And teaching his people Revealing himself to his people Notice then this that the church is at the center of God's concern because it is the representation of his kingdom, his salvation, his son. It is the congregation of those for whom he purchased with his blood, that he redeemed, that he came to save, that he preserves, that he longs to be with him. He is intimately concerned with the church is the very center of his purposes and his program in this world. Kingdoms rise and fall. Kings will come and go. Armies will win victories and be defeated. But the church stands at the center of God's purposes. It does not go away. It's not changed. It is the center of his purpose. Matter of fact, he just recently, or just right before this, said in verse 6, In describing us, he says, This church, we are among all the people of God, a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. We are the ones through whom that we will the world can see and we will come to know his glory, living under his dominion forever and ever. We are the church, it says, whom he loves and whom he has released from our sins by his blood. To Paul. God revealed this and Paul said that the church is the display of the manifold wisdom of God to all the angelic world. And the angelic world there is best understood as both good and evil angels to all of those who are in the presence of God. He says the church is what has been hidden In God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, God holds up his work in the church. The uniting of Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue that will stand before His throne, giving Him glory and praising Him for His salvation, for His wisdom, and so forth. The church that has been the repository of the truth, to protect the truth, to live the truth, the pillar and support of the truth. The gathered people of God in a congregation, whether it be small, whether it be medium, or whether it be large, the gathered people of God to worship the risen Christ throughout all of the land is what God himself, by his own design, by his own eternal purpose, has held up for all of the angelic world to look at and for him to say, that is my wisdom. The people who are the body of my Son, who have the spirit of my Son, whom I have adopted and drawn near to myself through the Son. It is the church. It is the church of God that He is intimately concerned with. It is the church of God that He gave an unfailing promise that says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The Antichrist will not prevail against it. All of the united power of all of those who hate Christ are nothing against the power of God who said, I will build my church. And so this is the message that John has. It is the message of the risen Christ to the church, to the people of God that he purchased with his own blood. And it means then that Christ is concerned about the health and the holiness of the church. It's why the message has come not only with encouragement in those who are acting faithfully, but it comes with confrontation of those who are acting sinfully. That's why, by the way, we have church discipline. Because Christ is concerned about the holiness of his church. He's concerned about the purity of his church. Yes, he's concerned about the individual members. Yes, that whole process is a part of how the risen Christ extends his love to those who are his people so that they would not go too far and they'd be pulled back from sinful choices. But at the end of the day, above all of that, is, it's about Christ's love for his church and the protection of the purity of the church and of the truth. And we can take much comfort in this, especially in light of the reality of his risen glory. Whatever opposition arises from the world... Whatever hostility comes from the kingdom of the Antichrist, we can know that Christ takes special care and special notice of his church. We are in intimate union with him. This is beautifully shown. You remember when Paul was persecuting the church and what did the risen Lord say? Saul, Saul, can you finish it? Why are you persecuting me? Exactly. Why are you persecuting me? When you bring harm to my people, you're harming me. When you bring suffering to my people, it's your hatred toward me because they belong to me. I indwell them. I am in them. They are my people. I love them. I care for them. And so it is with the church. Christ is writing to the church because he loves the church. He loves you. He loves everyone who belongs to him. Because the church bears his name before the world. Because the church is the light and the salt. Because he died to redeem for himself a people. A people whom he loves, a people whom he disciplines, which is a proof of that love, a people whom he purifies, a people whom he upholds, and a people for whom he is returning. And that's always been the message. It was anticipated in the Old Testament, certainly the coming kingdom of God. But listen to these precious words, and with this one. He tells his disciples who still had a lot they didn't understand because there was still a lot for Christ to accomplish namely his death and resurrection but even after he rebuked Peter and said Peter you're going to fail you're going to fail you who are bold and confident in your own strength you're going to fail but he says in chapter 14 verse 1 do not let your heart be troubled believe in God believe also in me and he's Responding in one sense to Peter, but speaking to all of the disciples and to us. And he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Why? Because that's what he redeemed us for. Is to be with him. He didn't redeem for us to stay in this suffering pitiful state. Even that we are as his children here. He redeemed us to have re, re, resurrected bodies. He redeemed us to have spiritual bodies. imperial bodies. Bodies of glory. To be fit to be in his presence forever. With one another. With all of the holy angels. To be with him. To be near him. In an intimacy. and a closeness. And a joy that we can't even fathom here. We get inklings of it as the spirit works within us, but they're at best inklings. There is a fullness and a glory. And so what does he want to communicate to us in these opening words? It's simply this, that we're in this together, that we identify with the kingdom of Christ and we identify with the name of Christ and it brings trouble, but we are in this trouble together. We're in this kingdom together. We are going to persevere together And that we are going to persevere as we look to the end and to know what Christ is bringing as he's recorded for us in his word, given to us by his spirit, and knowing that he who called us to himself loves us and will call us to our eternal home in his kingdom. And then he's going to accentuate that next week by giving us a glimpse of the glory of the one who gives this promise. So my question to myself and to you is, what is your response to this risen Christ? What is your view of his word? What, is your, what, what power does the word have in your life? For all of us, it's not what we want it to be. But for everyone who knows him, we long for it to be more. We long to hear him speak to us so that we can follow him wherever our shepherd leads. And with that... May God strengthen his word to our hearts. Let me pray and then Mike will lead us in the closing hymn. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, O Christ, that you have spoken to us from heaven, that you have given to us things that we cannot know on our own, but that we need to know. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have given us light, that you have given us truth, that you have given us hope, that you have given us one another, even as we walk this life of faith together and we celebrate that in the Lord's table every so often and we remember that we are the ones who belong to Christ and that we are together waiting for our Lord to return and that's why we encourage one another all the more day by day as we see that day drawing near and we encourage one another to persevere We encourage one another to walk in righteousness and holiness. We comfort one another with the promises of the gospel. We help one another keep our eyes focused on that day and not to be distracted by this world. And when we fall, we pick one another up. And when one's discouraged, we bring them the truth and we point them back to you. And we ask that you would enable us to do this as your people. We ask that you would give to us in our own hearts a sense of the glory, the authority, and the sufficiency of your word. We pray that you would reveal to us your glory. We pray that we would not be like those leaders who missed it. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures, you think in them you have life, but you said, but these are the, what, those that reveal me. May we see you, O Christ, and find in there our every delight and our joy. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you bring this about again for the glory of God in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.